Now, you know, if those of you who are freshmen and have gone through orientation, you know that the university, the academy, is not bashful about indoctrinating you from the first time they open their mouths, right? And so what I want to do is right away try to indoctrinate you in the other direction. So it's very clear that you're going to have to choose between Jesus Christ and much of which you're taught. Not so much in the details of your classes as much as the ethos, the the sort of uh, the culture of the university. And there's probably no more helpful text for us to learn what we're to be like as Christians uh, in the academy is Matthew 15, 21 to 28. So would you please turn there with me? If you don't have a Bible, you'll see it up on the wall. Before I read the text, though, I want to read to you uh, something that I found years ago in the back of a feminist uh, book. I was uh, reading in the library at seminary, and they just bought this book of uh, feminist uh, uh, arguments. And in the back, I found a record of a discussion between a theologian and a woman. The theologian was Karl Barth. And let me tell you a little bit about Karl Barth. He was German, the time of the Third Reich. And Bart was a pastor in a church who, when he became a pastor and actually looked at, at, at the world and at the souls that he cared for, what he realized was that sin was everywhere and that all the instruction he'd had as a man prior to that date had led him to believe that sin wasn't so much the problem as maybe the need to educate people in proper choices. All right? That, that our real problem isn't um, our hearts, but rather that some of us have grown up uneducated, some of us have made bad choices. In other words, it was dealt with on a level that wasn't morally wrong, condemnable, wicked, sinful, but rather good and bad choices is how we describe it today. And so Karl Barth, as a pastor, began to understand the fact that in Adam we all sinned, and that since Adam, the central reality of our existence is that we fall short of the glory of God, that we're sinners. And that the central reality of our hearts is trying to mediate what we know we are with God's holiness and with the fact that one day we'll be judged. And so Bart began to rediscover orthodoxy. Now, you know what neoclassical architecture is, right? Well, Bart is referred to as a neo-orthodox theologian. And that means somebody who discovers orthodoxy new. In order for you to understand what I'm going to read to you, you need to understand a couple more things. Number one, even though Barth, as a German uh, intellectual, came back to an understanding of sin, Barth could never bring himself to recognize the inspiration of the word of God. He would speak about the word of God being inspired, but he always put the inspiration of scripture in the concepts of scripture instead of the words. Whereas orthodoxy throughout the 2,000 years of church history has always said that it's the very words and that you can't separate the words that the Holy Spirit inspired from the concepts that the Holy Spirit inspires. That God in his, in his, in his wisdom has chosen for the truths of scripture to be inextricably bound to the words of scripture. All right? And so really, if you look at conservative Christians, Bart has always been a sort of dissonant character, somebody that we're a little bit edgy with. We like the fact that he rediscovered sin and that he rediscovered depravity of the human heart, but we're uncomfortable with the fact that he's always looking in Scripture for the truth that's under and around the words while trying to say that it's not the words themselves. And, of course, the Orthodox doctrine of Scripture has always said it's the words that are inspired, not just the concepts. So here's Bart. He's writing under the Third Reich. He believes in sin, but he has a little bit of a loose liberal view of Scripture. 
And his correspondent is a woman named Henrietta Wissertoft. Now, who was Henrietta Wissertoft? Henrietta Wissertoft was the wife of the man that really started the World Council of Churches. So her husband was a man that thought all the Christians of all the world ought to get together and have a big organization, and it was called the World Council of Churches. And so he knew everybody everywhere. And this was his wife, Henrietta. So Bart and his, her husband were close, and Bart and Henrietta were friends. And so she is dealing with the modern condition of woman. Now, let me stop and say, all of you know what the modern condition of woman is, right? The modern condition of woman, you know we're at the, what, the what anniversary of woman's suffrage? Is this the... This is the anniversary. I forget which one it is. All right. The modern condition of woman is that finally, after, after millennia and millennia and millennia of men not loving their wives, not loving their, not, not honoring their mothers, not caring about their daughters, finally we've gotten to a point where men have learned to love their mothers and to love their wives and to love their daughters. All previous men hated women, but today, People like me have gotten in touch with their inner feminine, and we've realized that women are actually pretty neat. Now, I'm being completely facetious, right? The joke is that men have always loved their wives. Remember where it says in the Old Testament that, uh, that Isaac went into his tent with Rebecca? Remember that? And it says... Thus, he was comforted in the death of his mother. (laughs) Men have always loved their mothers and their wives and their daughters. But today, we're all convinced that no men before me, I don't know about you, but me, have ever loved any woman. And this is the conceit of the modern. We believe that we've discovered that women have value, discovered that women have skills, discovered that women have abilities, discovered that women have status, discovered this, that, and the other thing. So what is going on between Bart and this woman, Henrietta Wissertoft, is she is she's discovered who she is. You know, she's, she's like Nora in, in a doll's house, right? And she sees that she's really something. And she writes Bart, and she says to him, How come scripture doesn't have the same image of me that I have of myself? I can't deal with the dissonance. This is like driving me bonkers. Carl, I mean, air, professor, whatever that thing is, Jurgen tells us to say. Air, big hair. How do I deal with the tension? How do I deal with the tension? Now, listen to the correspondence. It's dated, what, February 1934. All right? Everybody tracking what's going on in 1934. Dear Professor Bart, I have to ask you a question. It is really a question addressed to Paul, but you perhaps understand him better than anyone in the world. That would make my chest sort of stick out if somebody wrote, maybe, Tim, you understand Galatians better than anybody in the world. So we start with flattery. What does Paul mean when he says, quote, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for the sake of man, unquote. And then Paul continues, yet in Christ's fellowship, woman is as essential to man as man to woman, 1 Corinthians 11, 5 and following. Then she says this, the answer to this question is very important to me. As one of the very few people who lead a meaningful existence today, you, I'm just glad it doesn't say I, (laughs) but of course it takes somebody leading a meaningful existence to recognize somebody with a meaningful existence. Don't you ever forget that. My daughter Michael's nodding her head, right? Yep. As one of the very few people who lead a meaningful existence today, you must realize what it means to struggle in vain for the significance of one's own existence. It looks indeed as if Paul was right, as if the first statement were a law which is still vowed. Look around, you'll see everywhere how woman's responsibility to God is impeded and defamed by man's. 
But has not Christ set us free? Is not everyone now directly responsible to God, whether man or woman? So why should we accept this law? Why should we not conform to the second statement, which certainly has more to do with what? The grace of God. If woman were not created for God, then Christ would have nothing to say to her. I think it's too simple here simply to say that Paul was expressing the prejudices of his time, the usual argument. But then it would be outrageous for a person like Paul to condemn half the human race so irresponsibly. I've indicated these matters briefly in a paper which I include. Believe me, Professor Bart, my question is not a frivolous one. I am compelled to ask it because of my inner need. I I would be extremely grateful if you could at least give me some indication. My husband, remember, the World Council of Churches guy, my husband sends his kind regards, yours sincerely, Henrietta Vissertoft. Now, here's Bart's response. Now, mind you, this guy's liberal on his doctrine of Scripture. German. Dear Madam Vissertoft, it is time that I reply to your letter. As you will know through your husband, I've been rather busy recently, especially since my return to Germany, as you can imagine. Before dealing with your question, I must ask you, God bless him, not to regard me as the man who understands Paul better than anyone in the world, (laughs) nor as one of the few who leads a meaningful existence today. For I cannot live up to these claims which prevent me from saying anything at all. Today I may perhaps be permitted to say something provisionally about your question. When I thought about your question, I thought I've already written on it here. Have you, and I'm just paraphrasing here, have you read what I wrote? But anyhow, here's my view as I expressed it at greater length in that passage in that work. Paul did not write it all that in order to teach and to canonize a certain concept of the relation between man and woman. He took that relationship between man and woman, which he considers the right one, to illustrate the relation between God and man. As it should exist in the Christian community. Perhaps I may ask you to read the very detailed sermons Calvin preached on this text. I still regard their basic view of the matter as right. Admittedly, the question still remains why Paul used this concept of male superiority to describe God's superiority to human beings. Theoretically, one might ask whether Paul could not have spoken of female superiority if he had lived in a matriarchal age. In that case also, he would have had to speak of a superiority in order to express what he meant in the text about God and der Mensch, the human being. I'm afraid that Paul could not have expressed what he wanted to say in terms of your own concept of the man-woman relationship, which is mutual interest and trust and responsibility. Mutual being the important word there. For between God and human beings, there can be no mutual interest. There can only be superiority. Perhaps this is the point on which you should concentrate your thinking. Furthermore, you must bear in mind that not only Paul, but the whole Bible assumes that the man-woman relationship on earth and in time is not a matriarchy, but a patriarchy. That is a fact, just as it is a fact that the chosen people, and who are we speaking about there? It's the Jews. It's a fact about man and woman, as it's also a fact that the chosen people to whom Jesus Christ belonged were not the Carthaginians, nor the Spartans, but... The Jews, the Israelites. Or, just as it is a fact that in his revelation in human language and history and philosophy of life, God did not choose the Middle Ages. He did not choose the 20th century. But he chose late antiquity, thus making that era the center of all ages. These selections, the choices of God in each of these areas, these selections do not imply any recognition of special worth and excellence in male persons, nor in Jews, nor in the people of late antiquity. 
but they indicate special dispositions made by God in his dealing with human beings. Their importance is only temporal, in other words, for this life. But as such, they cannot be simply ignored, nor can they be disputed with personal arguments like your statement to me, he says, without these, no human life is worthy of that name. Whether Now listen very carefully to this. Whether or not we recognize these distinctions between periods of time, races, the sexes, whether or not we recognize these distinctions that God has made as right, whether we like them or not, we have to accept these dispositions in this life until the time of the new heaven and the new earth. We are, of course, at liberty to object to these dispositions. In so doing, we may experience to some extent whether they're right or wrong. For instance, now remember, he's writing in 1934. For instance, a great many Christians in Germany today object to the fact that Christ was a Jew. Time will show whether their objections are salutary. And women can object to the fact that the Bible says that man is the woman's head. Time will show whether it is good to reverse this disposition or, as you would like to do, to neutralize it. I will refrain from saying anything about Paul's sociological or psychological or physiological arguments, but I may point out that there is another possibility not to oppose God's dispositions, but to accept them without argument, because they are, and then perhaps with time to realize that they are good. These dispositions are bound up with the fact of his revelation in Jesus Christ, who was a man, and thus confirmed the position of Adam. Now, why would I read that? Your first time at this church, and I was like, whoa, what, what is that? Listen, here's the text. Listen to the text of Scripture. Matthew 15, 21 to 28. This is the word of God, and it's eternally true. Jesus went away from there, and he withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he, Jesus, did not answer her word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Now let's be clear about one thing here. This woman is held up as an example to everyone who reads the word of God. Not only that, but she is commended in the strongest terms. She is said to have great faith, and she is rewarded for for her disposition and for the things she said and the things she does in the text. Now, what does she have to teach us? Well, first of all, we need to look at what the relationship was between the Jews and the Canaanites at this time. Jesus had been in Jewish territory with the people of God. That's what the Jews have always been. They've been the people that God plucked up out of their misery and set up on a high rock. The people that he brought out of Egypt and set into the promised land. And the Canaanites are the dirty ones who God has condemned. 
All right. And so the Jews, he has chosen, the chosen people, and the Canaanites, he has condemned. And she's a Canaanite. And Jesus is a Jew, and his disciples are Jews. All right? And so Jesus has been down in Jewish territory, down by uh, Galilee, and he decides he's going to go on retreat. He's going to leave the Jewish territory and go into the land of the godless, non-chosen people, the Canaanites. And so he goes about 50 miles. uh, So if this is Galilee, this is north. He goes about 50 miles up to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which aren't good names if you know Bible history. And up there in Tyre and Sidon, he runs into a Canaanite woman. Now, in the Bible, we know that the Canaanites are those that God has not chosen, but that's really to speak gently. Let me read to you what the Bible actually says about these Canaanites. In Deuteronomy 7, this is what God says to his chosen people about these Canaanites. She's one of them. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then what? Then you shall utterly destroy them. Now, mind you, this is a command from the only true God to his chosen people, that they are to destroy the Canaanites. You shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. This is God speaking. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim, their their idols, and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Did you hear the word chosen, 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 chosen? It's not because of anything good among the Jews. In fact, the Bible says that the Jews were chosen because it would be very clear to everyone that they weren't chosen because of anything in them. And here you read that it refers to the fact that they were nothings. They were weak, they were pathetic. So God chose them. Why? Because God always loves to make his power, his glory, his authority the main thing. Not me, not you, not us. And so he chooses the Jews because they're perfect for the purpose. Nobody can ever do anything but laugh at them until God chooses them. And then God says, I've chosen you. I'm going to be your God. You are to have nothing to do with the Canaanites. You are to utterly destroy them. You are to tear down their idols. You are to burn them in the fire. All right? And so this is the the meta-narrative of the Old Testament, the grand story, okay? This is what's going on all the time in the Old Testament. If the Jews intermarry, if they begin to worship the gods of the Canaanites, then God gives them over to captivity, and they go off and they live in these godless lands. And then, finally, they remember that they were not to intermarry, that they were not to worship, that they were not to give their children to the mouths of the idols. They used to burn the children as a sacrifice to God, that's, that, that was the worship of the Canaanites, to Moloch, okay? And so they say, oh, we remember God warned us, Father, have mercy, and then he brings them back to their land and takes them out of captivity. And so that's the background of this meeting of Jesus, who is the son of David, who is a Jew, in the territory of the Canaanites, with a Canaanite woman. Okay? 
And so she comes to Jesus and she says to him, what? She began to cry out saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon possessed. That's very interesting. If you see, it says, have mercy on me. A beautiful picture of the identification of a mother with her daughter. She doesn't say, have mercy on my daughter. She says, have mercy on me. Her daughter is her, right? And she cries out. Now, you may not think of it, but look at how she refers to Jesus. She's a Canaanite woman, right? There wasn't any love lost between the Canaanites and Jews, but she calls Jesus Lord. I don't think any of us call anybody Lord. Certainly not our president. I I doubt if Brits call the queen Lord or her son or whoever's going to inherit the throne. I don't know that anybody calls anybody Lord, but right out of the gate, she calls Jesus Lord, which is what? It's an indication of submission, of humility. Lord, son of David. What's son of David? Well, son of David makes it very clear that she believes that Jesus is the Messiah. She knows scripture. She knows that there was a promised one that was going to be sent, that was going to deliver his people. And so she calls him her Lord, and she says, son of David. So she's confessing faith in Jesus Christ. It goes beyond her daughter's need. She's placing herself under, I believe in God the Father Almighty. She's making a confession of faith. And then she says, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. So she wants him to heal her daughter. And then what do we read? Well, verse 23 tells us what? Didn't answer a word. Didn't, Didn't say anything. Now, why would Jesus not say anything to her? Here you have a person who is in great need, who is demonstrating filial, maternal devotion. You have somebody who is submissive and humble and meek. You have somebody who confesses faith in Jesus Christ. And he doesn't answer a word. So why? Well, we read, and his disciples came and implored him. Implored is a strong word. They pleaded with him. All right? They implored him saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. One chapter earlier, Jesus was teaching a whole flock of people out out in the countryside. And it tells us when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And so what you see is you see the disciples not wanting to carry the burden of the needs that they see, right? They really don't want to have to think about the hunger. They don't want to have to provide. In other words, the disciples are like you and me, or like me. Compassion is not a strong suit. And so here, they're not concerned about her. They just want to shut her up because it's obnoxious. She's crying out. And so they say to Jesus, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. Well, was she shouting at them? No, she was shouting at Jesus, but they couldn't stand it. But he, Jesus, answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. All right. Number one, silence. Number two, I was sent only to the lost. And remember, he's now in Canaan. You know what Canaan is. You know what Canaanites are. You know what God said about them. And he says, I'm here for the Jews. I was sent to the Jews. So here's a woman desperate need, confessing faith in Jesus, humble and meek. The disciples are hurting her. You understand? They want her gone. Jesus is silent, and then Jesus says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. All right? 
Verse 25, but she came. <laughs> now, at whatever distance she was up until that, she's now at a closer distance because it says she came. So maybe she was at the back of the sanctuary and the voice, and, and but she intensified. His silence and the disciples' disdain for her caused her not to retire, but to go. You know, she came. It says, but she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. Now, what do you see there? Well, what you see is the very opposite of Henrietta Vissertoft. She is absolutely, completely intent on getting from Jesus what she needs. And nothing's going to stop her. Not the disciples, not Jesus' silence, not him saying that he's only for the Jews. She's like, she's down there, and then she bows. Now, bowing is, again, like Lord, it's, it's a posture of humility and submission. And she bows. Can you imagine the modern American woman bowing? I mean, it's ludicrous. Christian women wouldn't do it, let alone pagans. She became and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. Again, not help my daughter, but help me. Okay, go ahead to the next one, please. And now, stop for a second, back up. Stop for a second, think. Every church in the country today is intent on teaching and preaching to you in such a way that you feel it's worthy of your attention. You know? Every church is intent on removing the offense of Jesus from you. What we want to do is present Jesus to you in such a way that he comports to your prejudices about how important you are. And every government program is manufactured in such a way as to assure you that you are, as fact, as important as you think you are. That's why we call them entitlements. You are entitled to what? Well, you're in. You're entitled to a good credit score, to a mortgage and a home. You're entitled to food, particularly if you don't work. You're entitled to preferential treatment if you have some limitation. You're entitled to an education, to the money to get an education. You're entitled to, if you're old, have free or cheap drugs you're entitled to health care. Of course, we've discovered that's an entitlement. You're entitled to everything you need. As a matter of fact, in the last... Oh, now, yeah, I just read. Now they're saying that everyone in the world, everyone in the world is entitled to the Internet. And you read China, you know, they, they released this, this image where it was shown that they were like, you know, hacking and, and, and attacking American uh computers through an IP address of University of Alabama, right? And so you've got these conflicts where now they sell us internet in a suitcase. CIA spent, what, $3 million developing. You take it into a country that is has people that are revolting, and if the government shuts down the internet, there's a internet in a suitcase, and it can bypass all the government stops. We can, we can like, use Google to, to, like, get rid of China, and you, you understand... Now, the world is entitled to get rid of anybody the U.S. doesn't like. And they're entitled to have an Internet to help them use, like Twitter and Facebook and other means, to further the revolution. So the Internet is an entitlement. Facebook is an entitlement. Any of you parents tried to take it away from your son or daughter? <laughs> have fun. You're entitled to have Facebook. Right, Allie? Right. Both David and I have worked hard this last year to take Facebook away from our teenage children. And it was a mixed bag. Um, don't worry, just for a limited time. So now you come into church, and what does the church do? Well, the church understands that you're all entitlement babies. 
and that you have an inflated image of yourself and your worth and your perquisites, your privileges, your, the things that are owed to you. And so what does the church do? Well, the church tells you that you're owed salvation through Jesus Christ. And of course, if it's something God owes you, well, you're never going to be called to repent. You're never going to be called to look at the wickedness of your heart because that doesn't reinforce your entitlement mentality. Do you understand this? But it's quite obvious that this woman did not grow up with an entitlement mentality. And so Jesus is dealing with her soul and he loves her. And you say, well, if he loved her, how could he possibly be doing the things he's doing, responding with silence, responding with an exclusive statement that he's come only for the lost sheep of Israel? And third, all right, three's the charm. He answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. (laughs) Now, come on. Every single one of you should be smiling right now. Because you smile when you just decide to give in and to lose. So go ahead, feel free to give in and to lose right here. Now you would say, well, how am I losing? Well, don't be offended for the woman. Jesus knew what he was doing. And don't be offended for yourself. Don't take her offense on as your own. Have the faith to look at Jesus and to realize that Jesus is loving the woman and everybody watching and you as you read the story. This is love for you, that this is recorded by the Holy Spirit in his word. Why? Well, because what you need is you need to be disconnected from everything you've ever been taught about yourself. Okay? You're not entitled to God's mercy. You have no uh, right. God is not in bondage to your fairness. God does not have to speak to you the way you want to be spoken to. God is God. God is not a man. He's not a man. Part of the reason that we're offended by this story is that it's a woman. It's always interesting to me how on one side, the modern world is very conceited about all the things that it recognizes about women. But when push comes to shove, we're also very delicate about women. And I don't see how you can have them both. Either I am woman, hear me roar, and numbers too big to ignore, and then let her compete with men. (laughs) Or woman has her dignity from God. And part of that dignity is for men to protect her. (laughs) From, like, for instance, killing her unborn children. Men that want the baby. Right? Okay? And so part of the offense here is that this is a woman. Do you understand that? How could, I mean, okay, fine. If Jesus wants to do this to some nasty Canaanite man, that's one thing. But he's doing it to a woman and a mother and a mother who's coming to him with the need of her daughter, not a son. Last night I was reading an account of a film that's being made of uh, the Navy SEALs, special ops. And... After a long time of research, um, they began to make the film, and very quickly they realized that actually Navy SEALs are better at being Navy SEALs than Femi actors are. (laughs) And so they they had this great idea they were going to have the Navy SEALs play the parts of the Navy SEALs, which I think is wonderful, and I can't wait to see the movie, right? But here's the interesting thing. First of all, when they would 
have an objective that they were to take, all right? So in this case, it was like a yacht. The Navy SEALs, or, or a house, or a building, the Navy SEALs were so disciplined that when they did anything in, in the form of military engagement, it was completely smooth and ordered and seamless. And what they say is when you watch them doing it, what, what, what overwhelms you is that everything you've ever seen in the movies until this point is obviously stupid. <laughs> because when you actually see a Navy SEAL sealing, <laughs> you realize that you ain't never seen a Navy SEAL sealing before. All right. But here's the other interesting thing. At one point, there's a woman who's taken captive. And when the Navy SEAL rescues her, they had to stop shooting the film. And they had to explain to the SEAL that he needed to bond with her emotionally. Because if he didn't do that, the women watching the film would be done with the film. And so they stopped it and they said, listen, you need to like have some, you know, as one of the few people who has a meaningful existence today moments with that woman. Because if you don't do that, you've lost the women. And so this Navy SEAL who, who's very good at sealing had to stop and emote. Is Jesus emoting? Is Jesus playing to the crowds? Actually, he is. Jesus is playing to the crowds. He's playing to two groups. He's playing to the proud, and he's playing to the humble. And the humble see and rejoice, and the proud are just furious. And I find myself asking, is there one humble man, one humble woman left in the United States of America? Is there anybody that can read this account and say, thank God that Jesus, our Lord, humbled her in the sight of everyone? You know what the church is today? The church is... A bunch of men who have vowed to be faithful to the word, squandering the word, lying about the word, running from the word, doing everything they can to preach in such a way that all the women connect with him. And there are two problems with this. Number one, the men are gone. <laughs> you know, that section in this Navy SEAL movie is not going to score high on the men's reviews. <laughs> You know, the men aren't caught up with him emoting with this woman. They'll just see a man that was told to emote with a woman trying hard to do it. Right? Like, like the, the conversations in your kitchen. And the other problem with it is the women that those men connect with are the women who are proud. And so what's happened today is Men who are called by God to preach are preaching exactly in the opposite way that Jesus consistently relates to the people who come to him. You will never see Jesus relating to the people who come to him in the way that you'll see pastors doing in America today. Because pastors are so intent on making you feel good about yourself, recognizing you're an entitlement baby, understanding that the whole world has been waiting for somebody like you to come along and be excellent for Christ. That's as close as you come to taking up the cross today <laughs> in the church, is I'm going to be excellent for Christ. And, and that's how we speak of if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. I'm going to be excellent for Christ. And mostly it's, I'm excellent. And there's just a little for Christ. <laughs> and so today, we look at this, and if we are so blinded and proud that we're in bondage, 
we don't even get upset at this because we can't even read it. We can't even hear it. We don't even see the offense of it. It just seems like, yeah, that's all a nice story from Jesus. But what of the woman? Jesus says it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, and dogs were slightly above pigs to Jews. She knew she was being, I mean, today we've got a black lab in our house. <laughs> but that wasn't the way dogs were back then. It was, it was very, very, very demeaning. And she said, yes. <laughs> Let's just stop with that word, yes. Yes. And then, Lord, master, boss, yes, boss, yes, Lord, but even the dogs, now who's she calling a dog? Herself. Even the dogs feed on, and what is she asking for? She's asking for a crumb. A crumb falling off the table of a rich man. To her, that's what the healing of her daughter would be. Fine, fine, fine. Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, Oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Now, listen. I know that it would be tempting for you to think that the reason I'm teaching this is because I don't like women, I don't like my wife, I don't love my daughters, I'm a male chauvinist pig, I'm patriarchal, I'm an American, I'm old, I'm gray-headed. And to do everything but look at your response to God. This is not about me. This is about your posture towards Jesus Christ. And I'm going to say this to you. This story is an example of how the Holy Spirit deals with us. The Holy Spirit does not come to us and flatter us. If you feel better when you've dealt with the Holy Spirit about yourself, it has not been the Holy Spirit that you've had to do with. Because every single time God meets a man, whether himself or through angels, the man is on his face. Look all through scripture, you'll see this. He's on his face. And the angel says what? Always, don't be afraid. This is not about me. This is about God. And when God deals with us, the sure sign that he is dealing with us is that we recognize that we're dogs looking for crumbs. Whether you're a man or a woman, old, young, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, Asian, American, Hispanic, black, not an ounce of difference between any of us. We are dogs. And what we're looking for is crumbs from the table of our master. And if you are given the grace by God to say, yes, master, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall, then your daughter will be healed. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about your heart. We're talking about your knowledge of your wicked heart. And when you recognize that you, in your heart, have fallen short of the glory of God, and that that, not entitlement, but that, you're falling short of the glory of God is the defining reality of your life. From the moment of your conception to the moment of your death, the central reality of your life is that you stand before a holy God and that you have a wicked heart. That's it. And when you recognize that and you say to God, 
Give me your crumbs. I'm a dog. Then God will hear your prayer and God will save you. I don't want to trivialize it, but I always think of that joke about country songs played backwards. You know, you'll get your dog back, you'll get your wife back, you'll get your pickup truck back. But listen, what you'll really get is you will get life eternal. And you will get an end to your conscience, bondage to sin. Now, that's what you came to Bloomington for. That's what you came to Bloomington for. You didn't come to get a degree so that you could earn money. You came to hear that Jesus has your number and that if you will humble yourself and come to him, he'll never cast you out. And you can stop along the wayside and get offended at any of those three strikes that Jesus gave that woman, let alone the insensitivity and lack of compassion of the disciples. Or you can persevere to the end when you say, oh, woman, you see that Jesus said, oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. So bring to Jesus. Bring to Jesus your need. He will not cast you out. But if you're proud, the Bible says God resists the proud. You have a wonderful example of a woman to follow, men. And so follow her. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this woman. And we confess that as Americans, we are in the eye of the storm of proud, rich entitlement. Father, I pray this week that as we go about working, caring for our families, studying, teaching, I pray, Father, that in your mercy, you will allow us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to take this godly Canaanite woman as our example and seeing the fruit of her faith that we may follow her as she follows Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.